Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Therapy Chat Podcast, Episode 152. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. Here we are in mid-September and it's finally time for a new episode of Therapy Chat. I'm back from my hiatus. I've attended two podcast conferences in the time since I last had a new episode for you and had many other wonderful adventures, but I'm glad to be back and to bring you today's episode I'm super excited about my guest for today. Susan Pease Bannett, LCSW, is a social worker and psychotherapist who specializes in the treatment of severe trauma and PTSD. She's worked in the field of mental health for more than four decades in diverse settings and teaches classes on healing from trauma in Portland, Oregon. She is also a Kripalu-trained yoga teacher. She's trained in Celtic shamanism and she's a Karuna Reiki master, a very interesting person who is extremely knowledgeable about trauma and helping clients who have experienced trauma. She wrote the book, The Trauma Toolkit, Healing PTSD from the Inside Out, which is a book that is for people who have experienced trauma. And it's so full of wisdom. Her new book, which is wonderful, is called Wisdom, Attachment, and Love in Trauma Therapy, Beyond Evidence-Based Practice. It's all about why it's so important to be relational and work with people who've experienced trauma, particularly childhood trauma, but all traumas. So let's not waste any more time. Why don't you just sit back and enjoy my interview with Susan Pease Bannett. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. Today is the first episode back from my little break, and I'm so glad to be bringing you new content. And this first conversation is an amazing one, I know. I'm talking today with Susan Pease Bannett, LCSW. 
Susan, thank you so much for coming on to Therapy Chat today. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure. And I'll let our listeners know that I have been wanting to interview you for a long time. Susan is the author of one amazing book that I love and have loved for a while and a new book. Her first book is The Trauma Toolkit, Healing PTSD from the Inside Out. And her new book is called Wisdom, Attachment and Love in Trauma Therapy Beyond Evidence-Based Practice. So I have been wanting to interview her about her first book. And now, thanks to one of our wonderful listeners who begged me to get her to come on, we made the connection and now Susan's here today. So Susan, will you just start off by telling our audience a little bit about yourself and your work for anyone who might not be familiar? Okay, sure. I would love to. I have been in this field a very long time. I've been in the field of human services for over 40 years. I started young. I've been a social worker for about 25 years. And my practice has evolved to a place where I specialize in trauma and dissociative disorders. Along with a few other things, I was a medical social worker. So I do a lot of supervision of medical social workers. Um, I worked in the field of autism for about 12 years. So I have that as, as a kind of side specialty too. And I feel like autism and trauma are also very related mm-hmm. to each other. And I do a lot of supervision and work with clients also with very extreme abuse backgrounds. That's wonderful. And your practice is where? My practice is in Portland, Oregon, Portlandia. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. What's great about that is that I have a holistic bent to my practice. So I am a Reiki master. I am a yoga yoga teacher, Kapalu trained yoga teacher. Um, I had to work with a shaman for a period of time because I had a lot of sensitivities I needed to sort out. And, um, and then I'm very traditionally trained in the Harvard medical area. So I've got this nice, you know, basket of things that I can use for my practice. I love it. And that's why I've been so drawn to your work because I, I started out as in a sexual assault crisis center before I went to grad school. And so like you, I have a longer history in the field than my actual experience as a licensed social worker, but I've been practicing as a social worker since 2010. And when I was in school in 07 through 09, I did three years, so 07 through 2010, actually, it was very, very much focused in grad school on evidence-based practice. And I really came out of there thinking, if it ain't evidence-based practice, you know, it ain't therapy. And, (laughs) but, you know, so I had that part of myself that was really focused on that, but it felt like there was really something missing. And the more I've integrated more holistic practices into the very research-based work, the more complete my myself and my work with my clients feels. So your, your books just resonate for me immensely. Well, I'm glad. It's important because, you know, one of the things I mentioned in this new book is that different cultures have really different standards for what is evidence-based. And I recently taught at the Oregon College of Oriental Medicine for a semester, um, their behavioral medicine class. And 
what I came to realize is that in Chinese medicine, they don't consider a technique evidence-based unless it's 200 years old in practice. Exactly. So, right. So it's a very different standard than um, what we do in the West for research. Absolutely. And so, and when you're working with particularly people who've experienced severe abuse and they have, well, any kind of abuse and they have trauma and dissociation, there's really no one size fits all approach that will, especially like a very top down approach is not going to be as beneficial, you know, because there's too much going on from the bottom up that isn't being addressed when you don't have uh, the other types of, you know, complementary practices that go along so well with our work, like whether it's Reiki, yoga therapy, but I'm interested in the shamanic work that you've done because that definitely comes through in the trauma toolkit. Mm -hmm. Yes. In fact, it was my work in supervision and in my own healing with this shaman that led me to write the trauma toolkit because I also went through um, about a four to five year period of fairly florid PTSD Mm. that this man helped me through. And, but he was, he had been a therapist himself for 25 years. He'd done a lot of Gestalt and Ericksonian work and then uh, kind of fledged out into a full fledged shaman. And at the time I met him, he was just practicing as a shaman and was recognized by a couple of tribes in the Northwest area as being valid And he could bring me out of traumatic states so quickly, I didn't even know it was possible. And of course, at that point, I'd already been working in the field for several years. So I really wanted to pass along this wisdom to other people. There's not even even enough yoga teachers probably to go around um, for all the trauma. So I wanted a book where people could access their own healing quickly and effectively in a way that they felt comfortable with. Yes, there's one thing in that book that stands out so much to me. I mean, the whole book, the Trauma Toolkit, is an incredibly rich resource of practices that are more indigenously based and and kind of written from a perspective of yoga philosophy. Am I am I yes. characterizing that well? Yes. Mm-hmm. Because yoga, and I can I conceptualize this in the new book for therapists as well, is that. I think it's useful to look at the human being as a multidimensional being. And in the yoga system, they have these five layers of the human being that they talk about, which is the physical body, the energy body, two different levels of mind. So there's a lower, what we might call the cognitive mind, and then a higher intuitive, or um, in the West, it was known as the angelic mind. And then there's the bliss body, which we could talk about flow. And what I realized was that the reason why people weren't healing from PTSD very well is that modern psychiatry really was only addressing one or two of those five layers. So that usually the cognitive mind was being engaged and maybe there was some psychiatry addressing the physical body. Um, but that's pretty, was pretty much it in the treatment space. And then people were going off themselves and trying to work with nutrition and yoga and acupuncture and other modalities but the therapy community wasn't really focused on those things. So I, when I sh- teach my class, I show this Russian doll, you know, the nesting mm-hmm. doll. And, and, and I visualize trauma as a sword that kind of pierces through all those layers. And they all have to be healed. 
because I, I get so many clients who've been in other therapies where the therapist has said something to them like, you know, you'll have to literally, these are quotes, you'll have to learn to walk with tra- trauma as a friend beside you. And my client mm-hmm. was like, trauma is not my friend and yeah. I don't want to spend the rest of my life with it. And yeah, but we, we haven't been taught as clinicians how to full, we've been taught how to manage trauma, I think fairly well, but we haven't really been taught how to p- help people heal fully. And so there's all these new studies that are coming out, like the ACEs study and the uh, studies on the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis that are showing us more the multidimensional nature of how trauma takes up residence in the body. And then if people are energy-based or able to see or sense energies, then people are getting things like Reiki on board or acupuncture, energy modalities that help heal and seal up the energy body. And a lot of therapists are moving towards those things. And whenever I present, I often have people come up to me almost afraid of being overheard (laughs) who Mm -hmm. want to talk to me about how they are interested in those things or using them or how their program won't let them talk about it. And so I really want to give people, I want to frame this as an issue of cultural competence that many, many indigenous cultures, including my own, which is Celtic, and Irish have had these modalities from time out of mind. And it's very, it's a very universal human experience to work with healing the energy body. It's actually only Northern Europeans who really kind of eschewed that, which I think is honestly a direct um, result of the inquisition and 300 years of suppression of those kinds of teachings and technologies. Whoa. I love what you just said. Wow. Because I just thought about like what came immediately to mind. It's not even the Inquisition, but like Salem Witch Trials. I just thought about like, mm-hmm. you know, just made me think of like a, a cultural genocide. It um, was a cultural genocide. It went on for 300 years. That's 10 generations. That's enormous. It's, it's kind of mind boggling when you think about it, because I've worked with practitioners from India and China who have these healing lineages that go back maybe 20 generations in their family. And so there's all this wisdom and knowledge that's accumulated. And Mao Zedong tried to get rid of traditional Chinese healing for a few years. And then he realized that he was selling his culture short and he uh, reneged on those rules and let people start practicing again. So that was just a few years, but you contrast that with 300 years. That's really quite a quite a big sea change for a culture yeah Ooh, you're a good social worker you really got me <laughs> thinking now <laughs> about that wow that's thank you for sharing that perspective I'm gonna think about that a lot and one of the things that popped out of your book that the first book that I carry with me every day in my work is I remember reading in that book if there's one thing that if it was the only tool you could have to work with people who've experienced trauma and who, you know, are severely dissociative, it would be sage. Mm. And that, you know, because it, because it's so grounding. And I mean, that's like, I don't know, for me, that was very powerful because that's not what most therapists who are working with people who have complex trauma are necessarily considering a number one tool in their toolkit. And of course you need, you know, knowledge and 
training and experience, not just Sage, but um, Mm -hmm. it's something where when, you know, when clients come into my office and they're saying, for example, I know that I'm dissociating and I feel stuck and I can't get out of it. Like I'm, you know, they'll say, I think it's depersonalization slash derealization. Like they have the awareness of what's happening, but they can't change it. And Mm -hmm. using that book as a toolkit has given me, you know, 10 things that readily come to mind that I can try with the client if they're willing to try and see, you know, which one will it be tapping? Will it be smudging? Will it be, you know, standing movement? You know, like so many things that you can try and understanding how and why they work to help people just return to more present moment awareness when they feel stuck. Right. Which are all these tools of what we call clearing and grounding. So when people are um, in these dissociative states, they're really, you know, what a clairvoyant or shamanic practitioner would observe is that they're not fully inhabiting their body, Mm -hmm. kind of out of their body, they might say which doesn't make sense to people unless they understand the context of that. It's not like they're literally out of their body, but their consciousness is out of their body. So they often can't feel what's going on in their body. And that creates a lot of anxiety. I had one clairvoyant put it this way. Anxiety fills up the space between the floor and wherever you're between the bottom of your feet and wherever your spirit is residing. Um, Or something that I like to say to people is that, you know, we have our, our core self and spirit, um, and then we have our ego self. And the distance between our core self and spirit and our ego fills up with anxiety and depression is how I think of it. Mm. So the more people are grounded and connected in themselves and their bodies and really anchored in, the less anxiety they're going to have, the less dissociation they're going to have. They might have other things break out, like memories or you know, really strong emotional states, um, which is why people aren't in there to begin with. Um, But as those clear, people find themselves really settling down. And I would only, I mean, I think smudge has been one of a a huge tool for me because it also arose out of my own sensitivity. I'm very, very sensitive to energy and I'm very sensitive to traumatic energy, which some indigenous populations in South America call heavy energy. And, and I experience it as heaviness. It's very palpable to me. So smudge really cuts that for me. So it almost became a, a self-defense and a self-care tool also right, right. to be smudging my office. Or if I had a real heavy trauma loaded person coming in um, with their permission, of course, we would burn some sage. And I even have a client um, who's a survivor of ritual abuse. But my number one, I'd have to say my number one thing tool, which I think you assume is the relationship is my relationship with yes. my client. Yes. That's my, that's all my the smudging ultimate. in the world. Isn't gonna right. help if you, if you aren't working on that. Right. And you have to get the buy-in some people, um, cause they work in the Pacific Northwest and there's so many smudgers here. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> like, you know, in Portlandia smudging is no big thing. Um, <laughs> a lot of everybody does it. We're on the <laughs> East coast over here. 
We're very yeah. cognitively minded. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit different. But it was interesting when I dug into that, that actually many cultures use smudge, including many Northern European cultures. So Irish had their own method. The Norwegians use sweet woodruff for smudging. Hmm. Their indigenous people did. So it's a very uh, universal tool. And I like it because it's very quick. And as you say, clearing and grounding kind of gets people in. Sometimes the shaman I worked with say, just smell it. Don't burn it. Just break it up in your hand and smell it. And it's like an instant ground. Yes. And the name sage itself is salvia, which means that which saves. So obviously the ancients knew something about the healing capacity of these plants too. Yes. The wisdom has always been there and we've, you know, in the West have kind of turned away from it. And, you know, as we're turning back, some of us are turning back toward it. I think it feels more, it makes sense. Yes. And to work in this field of heavy energy of trauma, we have to practice a lot of self-care in our offices or we're going to burn out relatively quickly or just not want to take on these kinds of cases, which is fine. Everybody's free to choose who they want to work with. But if you're particularly called to illness and heavy trauma as I am, then you're going to probably need a few more tools than the average bear. Absolutely. And I, I will add, I'm not sure if you agree with me about this, but you know, I hear people say sometimes, yeah, that's why I don't work with people who have trauma. I'm not really comfortable doing that work. And it's like, yes, you do work with people who have trauma. <laughs> you just don't know they have trauma. Right. So yes, I, I would agree with that. I, I don't really I, feel like we can opt out of being practicing in a way that recognizes that trauma is so prevalent. Yes. It's so prevalent. And at the same time, you know, I think those, those therapists are sometimes good for people who aren't yet ready to move into their traumas for healing. And they're kind of, they just need sort of more supportive, stabilizing work in their life if they can do it. And then of course, people with heavy trauma can't really even do that. And there's often this chicken and egg problem um, which I had run into earlier in my career where everything I would try to do to stabilize a client would backfire because life itself was the trigger, basically. Yes. And then that's when it's really helpful to have these alternative tools because I have clients who come in and can't talk to me. I used to have to refer those people out. Now I just put them on the Reiki table and work with them that way. And literally after one to three sessions, they're ready to do some talking. It's uh -huh. amazing how quickly that works for them. That is amazing. I still, Reiki for me is still uh, like an uncharted territory. I just, I want to understand more about it, but it's something that I haven't put time into really exploring, learning about. Well, there's so much out there to do. Some people are drawn to EMDR. Some people are drawn to other modalities that help make that safety and trust happen more quickly. I just happened to be drawn to Reiki. I actually kept having... Some because again, I have a lot of sort of psychic shamanic clients who come to me, mm. and I had a few in a row that came to me and were like, Why aren't you using your hands? And I was like, Um, therapists don't touch people, and they're yeah. like, <laughs> Are like too bad, like figure it out because you have a lot of healing ability. <laughs> so, after that happened enough times, I started looking around, and then I found this book written by a social worker at Mass General Hospital in Boston, which, <laughs> and she was using Reiki all over the hospital and she wrote a very good book about it. And I'm sorry, I can't remember the name off the top of my head. And there were a couple other books I found like that with psychotherapists using Reiki. 
And of course, there's the option with Reiki to not touch, which is what's great about it. Yeah. There's Reiki healing meditations that you can do. I do those a lot, especially with new clients, or there's just distance Reiki. There's, there's things that can be done that way. But I have found them with my very, very sensitive clients to be um, extremely effective because they can really feel it. Well, that is fascinating about Reiki. And I'm going to try to find out what that book is that you're talking about, because I'd love to learn more about how, you know, there's always that thing for me as a clinical social worker, concern about doing anything that would put me at odds with what I'm allowed to do, you know, according to my license. So if I understand how it fits and can feel comfortable with it, I sure will be getting trained in Reiki. And I mean, it feels like a beautiful, beautiful type of energy work. I just don't know enough about it. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Therapist, we've all had that moment. You wake up in the middle of the night. Oh my gosh, did I do my notes? Well, you don't have to worry about that anymore when you use therapy notes. Therapy Notes makes it easy to write your notes, get them done quickly, but thoroughly. My group practice has used Therapy Notes for six years and everyone always finds it easy to use. But the best thing is if you do need help, you can call their customer service number and a person answers the phone. And anytime I've ever had to use it, which is maybe three times in the past six years, my issue has been resolved easily with a cheerful demeanor in 15 minutes or less. So I highly recommend Therapy Notes. And don't forget, go to therapynotes.com and use promo code chat to get two free months. Reiki.org has a section for research. They're doing a lot of research with it, trying to collect as much um, evidence-based information as possible. So that can also help people who are drawn to it or considering it. Um, but even if you don't use it in your practice, it's amazing for self-care. It's really, really calming. Thank you. And that's beautiful that you have mentioned self-care a couple of times because I could not agree with you more how important it is for us as therapists to be constantly and intentionally practicing self-care throughout the day, throughout our our week, you know, our personal lives to keep us going so that we can be stay in the game and be able to help people for a long time instead of burning out shortly, like you mentioned before. It, absolutely. And um, so it, just in case it's not clear to the listeners, the Trauma Toolkit is a book that was written for lay people. It's written for everybody. There's a lot of healers that read it, but it's not necessarily written for healers. Whereas my new book, Wisdom, Attachment, and Love and Trauma Therapy Beyond Evidence-Based Practice is specifically written for therapists. Rutledge is the publisher and they're distributing it um, possibly as a textbook to people. Oh, wonderful. And there's an entire chapter, chapter, let's see if I can find it, chapter nine, which is the self-care for the trauma therapist. And yes. the whole chapter goes into a lot of detail, especially also around safety in the workplace. 
like how to call for help if you don't have a safety button. I, I was just supervising somebody who works with um, people coming out of prison and I asked her um, what their safety plan was. And her answer was, well, there's a probation officer down the hall. I'm like, I'm not sure right. <laughs> that that's a safe enough plan for you. Doesn't sound like a safety plan. She sounds like a person who's down the hall. <laughs> right? yeah. My safety plan is if I scream really loud, hopefully somebody will come run and save me. Yeah. So um, it's, it's better to have a more concrete safety plan. And I really encourage those of us who work in the field of trauma and violence to have those plans because I've had students who became in a great deal of fear. I've known therapists who were attacked, you know, for example, just, you know, if you have your, an Apple phone pressing the side of your phone six times in a row rapidly, we'll call 911 automatically. So it's a very simple and covert way to do it. Kind of go into those practical things. There's a side of my being that's very pragmatic, even though, People might call me woo-woo, which is a name that I love to hear because <laughs> I think it's not a very culturally competent term, but I have these other gifts. I have these other shamanic gifts, but I also have this really practical streak in me and I want people to be grounded and safe and protected in their spaces so that they, it's just another layer of stress that we add if we're a little uneasy every time we come into work or we have a certain client that makes us uneasy, it, it kind of, it stresses our body that much more. So absolutely good for lots of lots of different reasons. And I that's why I put it in the self-care chapter. But I also put a lot of things in the self-care chapter that I talked about in trauma toolkit in a condensed form. Oh wonderful. Well that's no and I love the self-care focus so again so intentionally in your book. It's it's beautiful. And I really wanted to say that to me I haven't completely finished the book. I'm, I must confess, but what it feels like to me, I could be missing something, but as I'm reading it, it seems to me it, it kind of combines for therapists an explanation of attachment, brain development, how the brain responds to attachment disruption and how the brain responds to trauma shock, you know, quote unquote shock trauma versus attachment mm-hmm. trauma and how all of that looks in the way clients present with us. And then, and so like it helps with the background, the conceptualization and what we can do. And I mean, to me, it's like, this is what putting that kind of information together in one place is really powerful. And then how to be relational as a therapist and why you, you need to be, or why that that is where the healing happens in work with clients, especially clients who have attachment issues and slash or trauma. Yes. I I think sometimes of when Clinton ran for office and they said, it's the economy stupid was like plastered on their campaign wall. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's kind of what every therapist should have plastered in their mind is it's the relationship stupid. Like it's the relationship. It's not evidence-based techniques are fine, but they behave differently in the hands of different therapists. Right. And so the example I give in my book is like if you've got one therapist who's got like an anger management issue and has road rage and on the way to work was like caught up in that stuff, as opposed to like um, like a Vipassana meditation practitioner who's got a very calm mind and they're, they both come into work in their various states of mind and they're going to administer the same instrument, but it's going to feel different to the client 
based on who it's coming from. Um, because clients aren't just um, reading our words, they're reading our, our being, they're reading our demeanor with them. And the more traumatized I find, the more traumatized the client has been, the more relationally traumatized the client has been, the more savvy they are about how we present to them. They're extremely good observers and they are excruciatingly sensitive people. And they will feel it in our energy field if something's wrong or upsetting us or if we have judgments towards them. So exactly, exactly. All of the studies that have been done over the last several decades just consistently show over and over and over again that it doesn't matter as much what the technique or the theory base is. What matters is the relationship between the client and the treater. And there's just been, there's tons of meta-analyses about this. Yep. And yet I have um, young social workers that I'm supervising that come to me, about a third of my practice is supervision, um, that really haven't been taught this. They really don't, they don't really know how to handle themselves because the old tools that I and others, especially on the East Coast, were trained with like process recordings and things like this, just aren't even introduced. Um, and it's really interesting. I went to give a talk on yogic modalities for psychotherapy at a local yoga studio, but the most burning question people had of the night was, a woman who said, you know, I've done all these evidence-based therapies with this client. We worked together for about a year. They got better. They came back six months later, and now I have no idea what to do with them. And I was like, that was like a light bulb moment for me. It was like, wow, is that where we are? <laughs> so this woman just really, and everybody in the room was like nodding their heads. And even though they were there for the supposedly alternative treatment of yoga and therapy, what they really wanted to know was, how do I create a healing relationship and milieu with my client? Which for a lot of us who are trained back in the day was such a basic and fundamental question, but it's not really being taught in the same way anymore. So part of the purpose of this book was to bring that wisdom back and to bring back that conversation among therapists and educators about not to forget that we need to teach people relational skills, and especially in an area, an era rather, where a lot of millennials have been raised in daycare. I think there's a lot of relational trauma among millennials. And Mm. I just read an article this morning about how a lot of younger people are being raised more by their peers than their parents to and how detrimental that is emotionally. So there's this almost not knowing how to um, work with people relationally because people are weak in that area themselves. Like I have two, I have twins who are 21. And just last night I was talking to one of my daughters and she said, Oh yeah. She said a lot of her friends have phobias about speaking on the telephone. They're not, they're fine mm. with texting, yep. but they're really afraid to talk to people on the phone, which is really kind of devastating to hear and also interesting. So I think that, that argues that maybe we need to go back to that education piece even more strongly in our schools and and training programs. Yeah, I think we've become more and more focused on product and outcomes and, you know, achievement that is measurable in whatever it is and less relationally focused over time. I don't know. I mean, I guess 
there was less awareness of attachment in the past, I guess in the beginning of the 20th century, there was less awareness of like what children's needs are, child development and children were treated as little adults, but something's different. (laughs) I think there were more family groups that were together, even if there was less awareness of like attachment needs there yes. was more just automatic need, meeting of those needs through having many people close. Yes. yes. Yeah. I, I, I used to be friends with a daycare, I mean, not a daycare, but a preschool teacher. And she had been in the business a long time. And she told me that about 10 years into her um, work, children stopped drawing belly buttons on figures of people. Oh. <laughs> like, en masse. There was an entire generation that just stopped drawing belly buttons, which I thought, as a therapist was so significant because mm-hmm. the belly button is the attachment to the mother place, right? Right. The literal umbilicus of attachment to the mother. And I thought something's happening. <laughs> something's happening in our culture that's creating that disconnection, which is a little alarming. And, you know, the Earl, I have this sort of section of the book where I talk about therapy's greatest hits and you go back to all the old therapists and they all talk about, Therapy as a container of the, and and repeater of the mother infant relationship. So you've got the holding envi- uh, environment of Winnicott, and you've got unconditional positive regard from Rogers, and you've got like one clinician after another is is talking about this, but somehow it hasn't translated over into our culture. And now therapists are starting to forget about that or not think about that as much, because when you become focused on immediate results. That's a that's a long evolving relationship and you can't really get there in 12 weeks. A lot of people aren't ready to tell their therapist anything much before six to nine months. Thank um, you for any, saying uh, that. Yeah. Right. I mean, you're not going to walk in. You might not even do your deepest trauma, but if nothing you tell, so you're into somebody a lot. I mean, you just think about a friendship. Like, how long do you have to be friends with somebody before you're going to tell them some of the really awful, ugly stuff that happened to you? Right? Probably a while. And your friend, you'd be seeing many more hours a week, maybe than a therapist. So these things just are time-based. Like, they really are time-based to, you can't, you can't cut the time and get to the same result. You can do some. I agree with you so much. Right. You can do some small pieces of work. But I have so many what I call CBT refugees in my practice. So many like because people go try that first. It's also appealing for people to do CBT because they don't have to go back and deal with their trauma. So they want to try to fix things without doing that. But it doesn't work for very long. It might work for three, six or nine months, which is the length of time that most of these studies cover. Which is why it's supposed to be the most effective modality. Right. Well, it is for three, six or nine months right. <laughs> at a time, which means that you either need to go re-up at three, six or nine months and go back into therapy, or we need to do studies that look at what kind, what are more long release therapies <laughs> than right. Right, these sort of short PRN th- therapies. I hear many people say, who've had past therapy say, and, you know, and come to me after previous therapy I know I shouldn't do this or I know I'm not supposed to think or I should just tell myself. And it's like, right, you know what you, quote unquote, should say to yourself or tell yourself not to think that. But if it were that simple, you would do that. 
Well, and not only that, but that's not neurologically sophisticated right. treatment because now we know that there are many, 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 many more pathways from the limbic emotional brain out to the cortex, the thinking part, than there are from the thinking part into the limbic brain. There are very few pathways from the cortical thinking areas into the limbic area than there are than there are. So, you know, when it push comes to shove, what's going to win out our emotions or our thoughts, it's going to be our emotions because we're mammals and emotions rule. Exactly. So just to, would you mind just break that down a little more? How, when you said the, the pathways out of the cortex and the limbic system, just give a little more explanation about that for people who might be like, wait, what does that mean? Oh, okay. <laughs> so the limbic brain developed after the reptilian brain and the addition that mammals brought to the scene were basically emotions and the ability to feel emotions, to feel each other's emotions. So we have these mirror neurons and we can reflect each other's emotions and feel them and have empathy, right? You know, layered on top of that, so dogs have that, cats have that, horses really have that. Mammals are very emotional creatures and they need to feel safe and cared about to grow and flourish. Um, whereas a turtle just lays her egg as in a hole, walks off and never sees her children again. <laughs> right? That's like a very different kind of being. So when humans developed, we developed this capacity to think, anticipate, plan, make stories, narratives, all those kinds of things that has allowed our species to survive and thrive on the planet and manipulate our environment. But we also have this kind of more fundamental and primitive part of our nature, which is our emotional nature and our um, empathy and our connection to each other and our need for relational connection. Like primates are highly, highly social beings. We evolve to need and crave connection. And when we don't have that, all the intellectual stimulation in the world isn't going to help us. That's why people, most people can't read a book and heal themselves. Mm -hmm. We actually have to sit in the presence of another uh, more healed limbic brain, as they say in this wonderful book, um, A General Theory of Love, written by these three psychiatrists from San Francisco. The only thing that heals us is sitting in the presence of another more healed limbic brain, right? So that again comes back to the relationship and the connection and the what Buddhists or Hindus might call a transmission of the teacher, which is if I'm holding a very peaceful, loving, caring space for somebody they can't help but start to resonate to that at a certain period of time, as long as I don't lose my cool. You know, if I stay the strongest mind in the room and I hold that space, people are going to just start healing no matter what I do. Wow. I love that too, how it doesn't have to be that the therapist has every piece of healing done that they needed to get done to make them whole and complete so that they can be this all powerful, just a more healed limbic system. Exactly. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like, you know, in the past, I, I don't know if you know that Wallace and Gromit uh, animation where the dog is laying down the tracks in front of the train as it's hurtling down the thing. He's laying down. Oh. Like that's what we're doing as therapists. We're laying down the tracks yeah. as our patients are hurtling along behind us. And that's okay. I think that makes for very um, stimulating growth in the therapist. And, you know, when we, when we get into those places where we feel overwhelmed and de-skilled, then we know that we need to work on something in ourselves 
either our technique or it might be just some aspect of our own personality. And then it's good to seek out supervision, therapy, and, you know, personal, I'm big on personal growth workshops. Mm -hmm. You know, tons of therapists go to the Kripalu Center in Lenox, Massachusetts and Omega Institute in New York. And out here it's Esalen and Brighton Bush and different places like that. I think I kind of may put a plug in, in my book for really wish those things counted towards continuing education, because if we're only learning techniques, that's just one half of our brain, you know, to really have a master wisdom therapist, we need to have really robust left and right hemispheric skills that we bring to the table for our clients, especially with severe trauma, because it's so challenging to work with. Yes, I I agree with you too about the personal growth workshops. And, you know, I do that myself. Uh, You know, I, I try to do as many trainings that are experiential as possible, but I also do things that are purely just for personal growth that are separate from my own therapy that I also have, you know, I'm trying to and acupuncture and, you know, exercising right. and, 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 yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> trying to do as much as possible, because I feel like that's what it takes to be able to stay with how hard this work can be. But I mean, it's such a it's such a sacred privilege to be able to do this work with people. It me. is a sacred privilege. Absolutely. It is also when we get it right, I think it is one of the most deeply satisfying things that I can do in the world. Yeah. Well, that's a beautiful place for us to end, but I would love to talk to you for hours and hours more, but where can people find your book, your work and everything that you have going on? Okay. Well, I am the only Susan Pease Bannett on the internet, so I am not hard to find. Nice. I my website is um, suepb.com, like peanut butter. It's also suepeasbanet.com, but that's harder to spell. Suepb.com will get you to my website. I do offer classes based on the trauma toolkit. I'm working on mm. ways to get those online to a larger number of people. So stay tuned for that. I'm also going to be developing a CE course based on my new book. Ooh through NASW. So look for that sometime in the fall. Oh my gosh. You can sign up for that. Yeah, that'll be fun. You can um, sign up for my newsletter, get those announcements when things are happening. And I, I speak, I do, I do interviews. I'm out and about. So, um, and I, I'm very responsive to contact if people want to email me or, or have a chat. So I'm really, my mission is about I don't want to take my successes to the grave. I really want to share what I've learned and continue to learn with as many therapists as want to learn from that. Oh, I'm so grateful for the work you're doing and that you were willing to come and talk with me on Therapy Chat today. And I hope that maybe we can continue this conversation in the future. But I think, you know, you are getting the message out there in so many different ways. And it's it's so important. Thank you, Laura. I will come back anytime you want to have me. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with Susan Pease Bannett. I felt so lucky that she agreed to be my guest on Therapy Chat. And I am loving that book, Wisdom, Attachment, and Love in Trauma Therapy. She pretty much wrote a book that affirms for me that the way I practice is clinically appropriate and really necessary. And that's very validating because I know what I see 
in the way that my clients recover from their traumatic experiences, but it's nice to have that affirmed and explained why it's so important, both for my own understanding and that of fellow therapists and for clients who are working with a therapist to heal from traumatic experiences. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com.